Jesus House in Pursuit of God Discovering Purpose Maximizing Potential Impacting Lives This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London God bless you And amen. Now, if you turn with me um, in your Bibles to Matthew, the 27th chapter, um, and so we ask, Father, that you breathe upon your word, challenge us with your word, uh, let your spirit do what you have purpose should be done in our lives, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We've been on an in- interesting journey, it's a sort of series that didn't start planned as a series, right after Easter, um, the weekend of Easter, Good Friday on Friday, and Easter Sunday. Um, The following Sunday, we started talking about some of the actors in that week, that weekend, some of the people who played a role. And um, a lot of them are, are not people who were necessarily on the front line in the sense that they were not the ones you would look to immediately. So the first Sunday, we spoke about. the, the man who carried Jesus' cross. If you remember, he was Simon of Cyrene, um, out of Africa, northern Africa, uh, who was called upon to carry Jesus' cross uh, up to Golgotha. And then if you were here last week Sunday, or you were online and you watched last week Sunday, we spoke about the two robbers, uh, the repentant robber and the unrepentant robber who died on either side of Jesus. Now today we want to talk about the man who loaned Jesus his tomb. The man who loaned Jesus his tomb. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. In the whole story of the crucifixion and resurrection, he seemingly plays a little part, but I'm sure you will, agree, you will agree with me by the end of this service that his part was significant. All the gospel writers talk about him. The beauty about the gospels being written by four different people is that you get different perspectives of the same story. And sometimes one writer mentions something which the others might not mention or two of them might, might mention. And so... Joseph of Arimathea, this gentleman who suddenly pops up after Jesus has been crucified and who loans Jesus his tomb and Jesus is buried in his tomb. Matthew talks about him in Matthew the 27th chapter from verses 57 to 61. He tells us that this man Joseph was a rich man from Arimathea. He also tells us, Matthew, that he was a disciple of Jesus. He lets us know that he goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. And Pilate gives him the body of Jesus. And then he records for us how he goes through the process of preparing Jesus for a burial, uh, for his burial, and then lays him in his new tomb and departs. And then he lets us know that there were observers to this process. The ladies, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, were sitting there watching this process. Mark also talks about him in Mark, the 15th chapter, 
from verses 42 to 47. And he brings a bit more perspective. He lets us understand that it was actually on the preparation day. That's the day before the Sabbath uh, that uh, Joseph did what he did. He lets us know that Joseph was a prominent council member uh, who was committed to Jesus, waiting, he says, for the kingdom of Jesus to come. He also mentions the courage of Joseph in going to ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. Uh, he throws in there that Pilate was amazed that Jesus had already died and that when he'd asked the centurion if that was the case and the centurion, the guard, told him it was, he gave Jesus his body, granted that Jesus' body be give, given to Joseph. And then he tells us the same thing of how he prepares the body for, bur for his burial. And then Luke also has his account in Luke, the 23rd chapter, verses 50 to 54. Um, he lets us know he was a council member as well. And then he gives us a glimpse into, into the character of this man, Joseph. He says he was a good and just man. And that's important to note, that this man we're talking about, this Joseph, was a good and just man. And then he also lets us know that Joseph took a position, and that Joseph's position was in the minority. The rest of the council, uh, the council was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were 71 people who were chosen to sit on a council the highest religious council uh, that oversaw the lives of the Jews. They were at the top of the social, social uh, uh, ladder um, and because the, their religion was also their social life. Uh, and so he lets us know that he didn't join the majority who had decided that Jesus should be crucified. He was in the minority um, lets us know about the fact that he was committed, he was waiting for Jesus to come, and then he also lets us know about uh, the processes that he went through for the burial, and then reminds us about the day, and I think that's significant, that it was the day of preparation as the sab Sabbath drew, new, drew near. And then John gives us arguably the most information out of all of them. Of course, he lets us know that he was a disciple of Jesus, but he lets us know that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. Um, he also lets us know that he was a secret disciple of Jesus because he was afraid of the rest of them. So he followed Jesus, but not everybody knew that he was such a committed follower of Jesus. Um, he lets us know that this man understood structure and authority by using the word permission. He went to Pilate to ask for permission to bury Jesus. And then, crucially, he lets us know that there was another person who played a role in this. All the other three don't mention that. But John lets us know that, that Nicodemus, another secret follower of Jesus, and you would remember Nicodemus, how he went at night to have this discussion with Jesus. And he went at night, it is said, because he didn't want anyone to see him associating with Jesus because the rest of the Sanhedrin had labeled Jesus an impostor, a fraud, a revolutionary, a rebel. And, but there was something about him that had touched Nicodemus. And so Nicodemus sneaks at night to try and get some understanding of this whole thing about being born again. How are you born again? 
And it's that same Nicodemus that comes together with Joseph of Arimathea and, and actually spends his money. So these were two very wealthy men. How do I know they were wealthy? Because firstly, the Bible tells us that, that, and when the Bible says a man was rich in material resources, he was rich. Joseph was rich. Um, how do I know Nicodemus was wel- wealthy? Because of the amount he spent burying Jesus. He gave Jesus, him and jo- Joseph, the kind of burial that was only reserved for the richest, the, 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 those that, who were at the top of the hierarchy of that, of that co- community. The Bible says he spent a hundred pounds in those days just buying um, spices to embalm Jesus' body, aloe and, and myrrh. That had to be a, a, a really wealthy man. And then he tells us how they bound Jesus in, in linen and put him in the tomb. So those were the four different accounts. They tell us of this secret disciple whose name was Joseph of, Ar- of Arimathea, who was a prominent council member, a member of the Sanhedrin, the highest religious can- council. They tell us about his wealth. They talk about his character, a man who was who stood for justice, who had integrity. Um, historically, they tell us that he was a businessman. That's how he got the wealth that he got. Now, there are many life lessons, and that's where I was going, that we can learn from this account. Life lessons that I hope will challenge you even as it challenged me. You know, it's interesting because it, as I was preparing this message, two real examples in my life of Joseph's of Arimathea. Um, one of them is a friend of mine called Ken Costa, who actually wrote a book about Joseph of Arimathea. And most of you might, will know Ken. Uh, um, he rose to the top of the finance world here in the United Kingdom. The Times newspaper called him God's banker uh, because of how high he rose to the top of the finance world and served num- numerous prime ministers as their representative to um, some of the Arab nations, you know. Um, someone who I admire, who's a mentor of mine. And the second person is someone who's also very close to us as a family. And as I was studying these things, I thought this, these two guys remind me of Joseph of Arimathea. And it was interesting driving to Harrogate where I was speaking at the Assemblies of God Great Britain Conference. I called Ken and we had a great chat about Joseph of Arimathea. Life lessons that I think we can learn from this. Number one, this account of Joseph's life, of Arimathea, this particular Joseph, it does something that we have seen in every one of the examples we have looked at, whether it was the man who carried Jesus' cross or whether it was the two robbers. And this is the beauty of the Bible. It authenticates the Scripture. 700, 800 years before, a prophet walked the land and began to prophesy about things that would come 700 years later. People must have thought, what on earth is he talking about? But he was prophesying about things that took place, especially in that weekend from from Friday to Sunday, from crucifixion to resurrection. Listen to what he says in this particular instance. Isaiah, the 53rd chapter and the 9th verse. This is the New Living Translation. He's speaking prophetically 700, 800 years before. And he begins to speak. He had done no wrong, he said, and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal and he was put in a rich man's grave. And you know, the beauty about the Bible 
authenticating itself about prophecy being confirmed for us is that it encourages our faith in the word of God. It encourages us to know that this Bible is what it says, the word of God. And really, I wanted to encourage us as we start that if there's one thing that can fundamentally change our lives, prepare us for life, guarantee us success in life, and success as God defines success, it is the extent to which we are in the Word of God, studying the Word of God, reading the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God, and speaking, confessing, and declaring the Word of God. The best thing you can do for yourself is to have that as a habit, as a way of life. That it is something you do every day. And believe me, I believe that there are special forces from hell. The crack squad of hell, the SAS of hell, is assigned to make the Christian not do any one of those disciplines. Because he knows our adversary, that our lives totally are transformed when we are in the Word of God, reading, studying, meditating, and declaring and confessing the Word of God. Because the Word of God is not a compilation of mere words. The Word of God has the Spirit of God and the life of God in them. That's why, of course, Jesus will say, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So this account authenticates scripture and also confirms the deity of Christ, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and the Son of God. It's the encouragement I got from this story that once again, what we stand on, what we believe, what we profess is confirmed to us as being authentic and real. Number two, what life lesson do we learn? We learn how God can just pick an ordinary person and insert him into this, his massive plan that is unfolding for the world. Because in a sense, Joseph was ordinary. Yes, he was a man of status. Yes, he was a man of wealth. But he wasn't part of the the, he, he wasn't the high priest or anything like that. Yes, he would have had some theology to get to the Sanhedrin. But he was a businessman. In today's world, he, would have been, he could have been a, a stay-at-home father. Or if we use it in a way that doesn't um, restrict it by gender, a stay-at-home mother. He could have been the teacher at the school. The person working in the care home. He had something that he did for a living. And God didn't go and choose those who didn't do anything for a living apart from what they did in the temple. He didn't choose the pastor. He didn't choose the bishop. He didn't choose the overseer. He chose a businessman. I find that fascinating. He chose the, the young girl that works in the top consultancy firm. The young boy that works in the council. The gentleman who works in the NHS, the doctor, the nurse, the teacher, the businessman, 
who has another life. That's who he chose a regular person to use to achieve something that was extraordinary. And you have to ask yourself certain questions when, once that rests in your mind. Where was Jesus' family? The tradition was that if somebody was crucified and it pleased the Roman rulers, they would give the body to the family. The family would make a request and they would give the body to the family. So his body should have been received by his family. But his family was not there. Where were the disciples? They'd walked with him, eaten with him, ministered alongside him. They'd seen all the miracles. But at that critical moment, they were afraid and they had run away. There was nobody to bury our Lord and Savior. What would have happened to the body of our Lord and Savior? Think about it. A number of things could have happened. He could, his body could have been thrown on the heap of bodies that were waiting for burial. Imagine that, the body of our Lord and Savior amongst other corpses waiting to be buried. His body could have been thrown out of the city and left for scavengers, vultures, to pick at the body until there was no flesh in the bones. His body could have been thrown into a mass grave. Just throw all the bodies into a mass grave, the body of our Savior. But because of one man who accepted the call that God had on his life, a regular man like you and I, going to work in the city, going to the school to teach, trying to get into politics, trying to build a business, joining a multinational after uni, one man who just knew that this was his time, the body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was not left to any of those things. He went and asked for the body so that he could give our Lord and Savior a decent burial. You know what he could have said? It's something that we hear all the time. It's not my responsibility. Somebody else has that responsibility. And don't we sometimes see it in church where we see something that's wrong and we think ah, somebody else will take care of that. He could have said that. I'm not his family, so why should I go and ask for his body? But he knew that it concerns our Lord and Savior, and if it concerns our Lord and Savior, it's all our responsibility. And you know, there's a powerful metaphor that God gave me with regards to this story. It was the physical body of Jesus that he took responsibility for. The physical body of Jesus. He just could not imagine that the body of his Lord and Savior would be treated in that way. Scavengers would come and pick at the flesh of the body. The body would be thrown into a mass grave. He couldn't, he couldn't accept that. So he took responsibility. Well, fast forward into a New Testament church. We understand from the Bible that the body of Christ now is his church. We are the body of Christ. So the question is, are there people who have the spirit of Joseph who will say, I won't allow the body of Christ to be scavenged. I won't allow the body of Christ to enter decay. I won't allow the body of Christ, not the physical body, but the spiritual body now, the church, 
I won't allow the body of Christ to be treated in that way. It's not my responsibility. They have pastors, deacons, deaconesses, elders. But I just won't, like Joseph, allow that to happen to the body of Christ. Where I see that there is a need, I'm going to step up to the plate to be counted like Joseph did, to play my part in preserving and strengthening and encouraging the spiritual body of Christ, the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Joseph did that. A regular man who played such a role that we are grateful to him because he played his part in preserving the body of Christ. The third life lesson we learn centers around him being a secret disciple. And you think back and you wonder, for how long was he a secret disciple? How long did he have in his heart the conviction to follow Jesus, but he wouldn't let others know? And you really empathize with other secret disciples. And there are many who are secret disciples. You know, you work in an office, but no one in the office knows you're a Christian. They have no clue what you do on Sunday. They would be amazed to imagine that you are sitting somewhere in Brent Cross on a Sunday morning or early afternoon listening to someone preach. You're singing, lifting hands. Are you part of those people? Those happy, clappy people. They have no clue that there's someone who is central to your life. And sometimes, we, we, of course, we can empathize because you don't want to be peculiar, strange. You don't want to have a label put on you. It's just easier. It saves a lot of awkwardness if you just remain a secret disciple. It's almost like having two lives. When he sits in the council, nobody knows. They are discussing Jesus, but nobody knows. And sometimes we understand it where you're in meetings and things are said and you cringe, your body, your body rebels, but you're a secret disciple. We are, we are, we are, nobody knows. You're at uni and it's not the in thing. You don't want to be taught, you don't want them to think of you as some of those crazy Christians. And so you suppress it. You're a secret disciple. Sometimes it's in our families where they have no idea how committed and how serious you are. You're a secret disciple. But then something happened to Joseph of Arimathea. How long had he been a secret disciple? No one knows. But on Friday, when Jesus was crucified, something happened to him. He thought to himself, I can no longer continue this life. It's who I am. I love him. I've given my all to him. I can't continue hiding in this way. And he does the most amazing thing. He risks it all. Reputation. He counts the cost. I don't know what happened to him when he came out so publicly 
by his actions to declare that I am a disciple. I am a follower of Christ. And how did he do that? By going to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body to be buried. Pilate must have wondered, what on earth do you want to do with the body of this rebel? But he was risking it all because something had happened in him that made him realize that my love for him is more than all these other things. If I lose these things because of my love for him, then let those things be lost. It usually happens to us at some point in our journey where suddenly we realize that compared to this relationship with him, everything else pales into insignificance. And that leads me to the fourth life lesson. Because you must ask yourself, why was he a secret disciple? John actually tells us why. In the 38th verse of, of John, the 19th chapter, he says, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he was terrified of persecution. So because he was afraid of them, afraid of the Jews, this successful businessman, prominent member of the council, lived a secret life as far as his faith was concerned. He didn't want to be mocked by his colleagues. He didn't want to hear them make intellectual arguments about the stupidity of his position. And some of you might understand it. I understand it. I've been ridiculed. I've been mocked. I've been told that how can an intelligent lawyer end up believing this foolishness. And it's worse if you're in some circles. And you know, some of the people who are mocking you, they are, they, are, they are so intelligent that you can't even, you don't even know how to marshal an argument apart from, say, what the Bible says. They make a mockery of your faith. The foolishness of it. They say that we are delirious. We're on an opium of sorts. They are conning us. And the list goes on and on. And they have a way of finding the bad apples and projecting the bad apples. They have a way of making issues of things that are sacred to us. And it can seem overwhelming sometimes. And so because of fear... A lot of people live a secret life. But I'm encouraged by scripture. Because scripture tells me about persecution and about what Jesus thinks of persecution. Scripture talks about the blessedness of them that are persecuted. And you know, some persecution is in-your-face persecution. It's crude, it's brutal, it's raw. You're thrown into jail, you're you're attacked physically. You have no access to any of the basic amenities in the community simply because you love Jesus. We know that. We prayed for the persecuted church all around the world. Your family is, is, is persecuted. Your children can't go to school. Your life is threatened. And sadly, some lose their lives. But there's persecution that's also mental. There's persecution that you feel where you're in a place where the Christian is the minority. 
where you feel where you're in a nice job, sitting at a desk that looks out on, on has a very nice view, in an office that makes billions a year, with people who are carrying laptops around and talking about strategy and all the fancy words that are used in those places. And yet, there's persecution there just simply because you say you love Jesus. But then Jesus encourages us, Matthew 5 verse 11. Blessed are you, he says, when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. <coughs> Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says there's a blessing that comes for persecution. How ecstatic, the Passion Translation says, you can be when people insult and persecute you and speak all kinds of cruel lies about you because of your love for me. So leap for joy since your heavenly reward is great for you are being rejected the same way the prophets were before you. And as Paul is encouraging his protege Timothy about life as a Christian, he says this to him, in 2, 2 Timothy, the third chapter and the 12th verse. 2 Timothy, the third chapter and the 12th verse. Listen to what he says. He says, yes. And everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's a mind-blowing scripture. What is he saying? Any, anyone who wants to be a Christian. Who wants to live a godly life in Christ. Anyone. Not the bishop. Not the vicar. Not the overseer, not the archbishop, not the pastor, not the deacon, not the elder, not the deaconess. Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, not might, will suffer persecution. <coughs> Excuse me. In a world that is determined that fluidity must be the order of the day. In a world that takes down every boundary. In a world that detests anyone who says there are absolute truths. <coughs> In a world that is so anti-God and even more so anti-Jesus in certain quarters. In a world that frowns at the thought of submission to a loving father. In a world that fuels independence from God. In a world that attacks every institution that the Christian holds dear. In a world that attacks every value system that you and I subscribe to. To take a position based on what the world calls an archaic book. An outdated mode or expression of worship. You are definitely going to be persecuted. That's what the Bible says. It's impossible in the 21st century, to stand for Christ 
and not expect persecution. It comes with the territory. And Joseph, for many years possibly, was afraid of that. But he got to a point where he thought, you know what? Whatever is going to happen, let it happen. That's who I am. That's who, whose I am. So whatever, let it happen. Number five. Joseph challenges us as to how we use what God has blessed us with. Oh, he really challenges us. Joseph was blessed with many things, but two things stood out. He was blessed with wealth. He was a rich man. He had money. He was also blessed with status. That status brings influence. So there were two things God had given him. Money and influence. He understood that when God gives one any of these things or any other thing, that God, he understood the foundation of our faith that the Bible clearly puts before us as the Bible brings the patriarch of our faith, Abraham, before us. He was blessed to be a blessing. He got it. He got it. It challenges us as to what God has given us. It certainly challenged me. He's blessed us with time. He's blessed us with talent. He's blessed us with treasure. Joseph could have said, I have no time. It certainly was not a good time to be associated with Jesus. No. We would have understood if he waited for another time. A man of his repute, of his position, must have been a busy man. Busy on the council, he was a prominent member. Busy running his business, it was a successful one. But he understood that time is a gift that God has given me. And I have to sow it. Because one day God is going to ask me what I did with it. You know, today... Look at the world. People don't have time anymore. We don't have time for ourselves. We don't have time for others. We definitely don't have time for the body of Christ. People are on a fast treadmill to achieving career goals for themselves. And the body lies. The church lies forgotten. Joseph could have said, I don't have time for the body of Christ. And he wasn't doing any of what he did for a reward. No one was going to pay him. On the contrary, he stood to lose in a natural sense. He had obviously talent, graces. He was a successful businessman. He understood how to approach life from a business perspective. 
how to have a clear strategy, have a goal, implement the goal. He used the talent. He must have the ability to think through a situation as a businessman, make sharp business decisions. He made very sharp decisions. We've got to get the body from Pilate. What do we use to get the body from Pilate? What do we have? I have my status. I'm going to use my status. It's going to cost me, but I've got to do it. And then when I get the body, what do we need? We need some linen clothes. We need a tomb. Okay, where can we get a tomb? No tombs in the land. Hewing out a tomb from the rock is a difficult process. He took a business decision. I have a tomb. I'm going to let it go for him. Hopefully, I have many more years. And I will buy another tomb. All the talent he had was brought to bear. Look at a church like Jesus' house. We have so much talent. What are, what are you doing with the talent you have for the body of Christ? It's okay, yeah. You work in that multinational. You're hot in the multinational. But have you given some of your time to preserve, strengthen the body? Yes, 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 you work till 6 p.m. But what about giving a few hours on a Saturday to mentoring the next generation, maybe? Raising more people like you, maybe? Giving some of the talent and skills that you have to the church, to the body of Christ, to the kingdom of God? That's what Joseph did. He understood it. So we have to go and find external consultants and pay them a fortune to try and help us get the church to the next stage. Sitting in Jesus' house are people who can do better probably than the external consultants, but they are too busy. And he had treasure. He had money. And he put his money where his mouth was. And thank God for the sacrificial giving that goes on in Jesus' house. You know, everybody doing what they can. But let me talk to the businessmen and women. The truth is that who's going to drive the work to the next stage? It's got to be those who are earning humongous salaries, great bonuses, and especially the businessmen and the women. That's how it works. Anytime you see the work of God flourishing, believe me, there are people who are behind it as treasurers. That's what they do. They are Josephs of Arimathea. They understand it. So now here we are asking everybody, contribute, contribute, so you chip in so that we can have, have, have this, this party that we want to have and celebrate the queen, but also use it as a, as a family come back and use it to, you know, as an outreach. You know, and we're saying everybody chip in, so you know, everybody's going to chip in 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 50 pounds, you know, 100 pounds. But, but there's some people who, who in an, in, you know, if we got the Joseph spirit, people should just come up to me and say, Pastor, don't bother the church with that. How much did you say you wanted? 42,000. Okay, four of us will give you the 42,000. Then you can, 10,000 each, you look for 2,000 pounds. That's how it should happen. And you know, I was so encouraged after the first service, one of the Josephs walks up to me and said, Pastor, that thing you said, um, 5,000 pounds from me towards it. Done. Done. And you know, the thing with Joseph is that he doesn't do it for attention. He's not doing it to announce himself. He understands it's a calling. When he does it, he even tells you, don't mention it to anybody. Here it is. 
That's the Joseph spirit that understands that this bonus I get is not just to go into ISAs and to go to buy another house. But this bonus I get is because God has blessed me. So I must be a blessing to the kingdom of God. That's how it works. He understood that if I don't play my part to serve the body, preserve the body, the body is going to be scavenged. He understood one of my favorite scriptures. And believe me, this scripture, I love it. Ecclesiastes, the ninth chapter and the 11th verse. The wise king says, I returned and saw under the, under the sun that the race is not to the swift. It is not to the swift, believe me. There are people who start running the race at the starter's gone at the start. When you look at them and they take off, you say, if you're a betting person, you put your money on that guy. That guy's going to win. Why is he going to win? Have you seen how he started the race? He's flying. But the race comes to an end and that guy's not even in the picture. And somebody who didn't have his swiftness has breasted the tape. And you then realize, my God, the race is not to the swift. It says the battle is not to the strong. Have you seen strong people fail? Have you seen people who seemingly have all that it takes naturally not achieve the goal? Have you seen people who you think have it all together, but they, 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 they lose in the battle? No, it says no bread to the wise. Wisdom is not a guarantee of bread. You can be wise and be very hungry. It says no riches to men of understanding. And the Bible is just such a beautiful book. In another part of Proverbs, the Bible says the poor man knew what to do in the city, but nobody will listen to him. He has the ideas. But he starts to talk. People say, sit down. That's why when we do certain things, we say, oh, young ladies come together in Esther's 1830s. Not just because we want young ladies to come together, but we're saying the stage of life you are at, you understand each other. You get each other. When we say mature single ladies should come together, it's not, it's not because we're saying, oh, you're not yet married. No, no, no. We're saying that you get each other. When you say something, the other person can finish the sentence. When we say businessmen come together, it's because iron sharpens iron. Come together. You guys, you guys speak a language the rest of us don't understand. And when you come together, iron sharpens iron. And sometimes the enemy has brought bad experiences in our past. Guess what? God uses it for his kingdom. Yes, yes, I was abused in my marriage. Do you know that there are many women who are abused in their marriage? Some men who are abused in their marriage? Can you imagine how powerful if you all came together and served the body of Christ? And number seven as I end. And I think this is actually foundational. Joseph had character. We can only go as far as our character it is impossible to go further than our character.
Luke says about him as he gives this testimonial to Joseph. He's a good and just man. He could have said it in many other ways. This man has integrity. This man has compassion and kindness in him. That's what he was saying. This man will fight for what is right. He'll fight for justice. In other words, he was saying about Joseph, this man has character. We are selected for God's assignments on the basis of God's judgment of our character. And God does not look on the outside. He looks on the inside. He knows us. Some people are saying, God, promote me. God is saying, I can't. Because the cost to the kingdom, when you crash at that new level, is going to be too high. So stay where you are. We can manage any mess that happens there. Your character cannot carry the next level. And character is not who we say we are. Start by what do other people say you are. That's a good starting point. But that's not even where we are ending. Character is really who you are when no one is watching. And anyone who understands that knows that it's impossible for us to forge character ourselves. I read many books where they are trying to train us to develop character. I know before I even finish reading the book that this is an exercise in futility. It's impossible for us to build character that will withstand what the enemy throws at us. So what do we do? We have to rely on someone else who has the capacity, capability to build the character in us. And how does that happen? Well, God already had it figured out. Jesus said, it's important for you that I go. Because when I go, then we will send a helper. That helper has been sent and lives inside us. Just that some of us have made him redundant. But he hasn't gone. He just lives there, not doing much. So how do we develop that character? The African elders have this saying. The soap in Africa that is made locally is black. It's kind of being made now internationally, by the way, which is interesting. I think it was Body Shop I, I walked by and I saw the black African soap looking at me from the window and I thought, wow. So the soap is black. And in the countryside in Africa, there are no plastic soap dishes. Thank God for that. At least it's saving the world. So what do they use as a soap dish, a soap covering? They use a green leaf of a particular tree. So they pluck the leaf, put the soap in it, and wrap it up when they're not using it. Now, after a while, an amazing thing happens. The green leaf becomes black like the soap. So a natural green leaf acquires a new color. Why does that happen? Because of the proximity, the integration, the closeness of the soap and the leaf, they've become one. 
So how do we genuinely develop character? Can't do it ourselves. It's an exercise in futility. We invite the Holy Spirit to do it. We yield ourselves to him. Like the soap, we wrap ourselves in him. I mean, like, like the leaf, we wrap ourselves around him. If we do that consistently, intentionally, over a period of time, guess what? After a while, the leaf takes on the color of the soap. We don't even realize when it's happening. Those who are watching are the ones who will say you're changing. You're becoming blacker. More black, whatever the terminology is. And that's not color of skin. It's metaphor for the fact you're becoming more and more like God. And so Paul puts it like this in Galatians as we come to an end. Galatians, the fifth chapter. The 22nd and 23rd verse. The Passion Translation. But the fruit produced by the Holy Spirit within you. Amazing. That he produces fruit within me. Just, just leave him there. And just submit to him. Yield to him. Nourish the relationship. Obey him. Don't grieve him. And eventually what happens is that fruit just suddenly starts to appear. Yes. It says, but the fruit the Holy Spirit produced by the Holy Spirit within you is divine love. So it always starts from divine love. The Spirit is at work. The Bible says sharing the, sharing the love of God abroad in our hearts. But then it has expressions, that fruit. Joy that overflows. That's how people have joy. Joy is not something that is attached to a new car. That's happiness. Joy is not we bought a new house. I mean, you know, we, we, we say these phrases, but they're not really true. We bought a new house, but Halifax owns the house, 92%. You own 8% of the house. You invite us to a house you own 8% of to come and dedicate as your house. When I go to some of these things, a part of me wants to tell them the truth. But I say, I could just dedicate the house. Let's go there. You encourage them to live on faith and hope. Let them live on faith and hope. But this house is owned by Halifax. You own 30% of it. The truth is that we should really not invite anyone as our house until we've paid it, paid, paid it off. Because until we've paid it off, it's owned by Bank of Scotland. I mean, if you think you own it, push it down. Get a bulldozer to come and push it down. My house, I don't like it anymore. I'm knocking it down. And you don't get the permission of Santander. We will visit you where you shouldn't be. Because the house is not yours. So joy doesn't come from any of those things. Joy is something that comes from an internal spring inside us. That's why James could be chained to two soldiers, knowing his execution date was the next day. And still say to us, count it all joy when you fall. I mean, James, are you crazy? You're chained. What is joy? James says, no, 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 no. I don't feel the chains because what I have is internal. There's something inside me 
that has assured me of the future, assured me of God's love, assured me of where I end, assured me of how I will overcome, that has told me that all things are working together. So it's not natural, it's internal. It, that, that, that expression of character comes from the Spirit of God. And the list goes on and on. Peace that subdues. Those are powerful phrases. Where there's a storm and your peace subdues the storm. The storm might still be raging, but the storm cannot touch you. That's deep character. Patience that, that endures. Where people reach the end, but you go beyond. Only the Spirit of God can do that. Kindness in action. You can try and simulate it. <coughs> but there will be times when you, the halo falls off your head. You know, you just can't even, you're, you're like, uh-uh, am I the only one? Uh, what is wrong with you? Am I a fool? Am I a doormat? What is wrong with you? Because we are doing this Christianity. Please be careful, oh, this Christianity doesn't mean that we are idiots. Nonsense. What is wrong with you? Because I, we are doing this Christianity. I've been holding myself because of this Jesus and church. Pastor Agu said we shouldn't. Pastor Agu said we shouldn't. That's why you're talking like that. It's Pastor Agu in this house. I will teach you a lesson if you go and tell your Pastor Agu. The halo has fallen off because it, because it was in their own strength. A life full of virtue, faith that prevails, gentleness of heart, and strength of spirit. The ability to keep going through adversity. When people hear what you're going through, they're thinking you, you went through that And, you are, and, you, and you're still walking around? Yes, went through that because it wasn't my own strength. The character for it, the resilience for it didn't come from seven ways to overcome adversity, the latest bestseller book. No, it came from the Spirit of God. And then he says, never set the law above these qualities. Never set religion above these qualities. You know, when you acquire the Joseph spirit, Religion doesn't matter. You know, religion is a terrible thing. It suffocates you. Suffo suffocates you. I hate religion. Oh, Lord. I hate religion. Religion always tells you, a friend of mine, um, Pastor Glenn of Audacious, was telling me at the Assemblies of God that he grew up thinking that God's favorite fa phrase was, I am not. You know, because that's what religion tells you. He cannot, you cannot, he cannot, he cannot, he will not, I am not. That's all you hear. So he said one day he came across God saying, I am. Ah, he went to meet his parents. That This God says, I am. You people have been telling me I am not. That's what religion does for you. I mean, look at Joseph. Do you know that in preparing Jesus' body, Joseph and Nicodemus knew that they were finished with their religious people because they were touching a dead body the day before Passover. Unbelievable. Their law said they should not go near a dead body. But their compassion and passion for Jesus said this religious rule is good. Because of this rule, we won't bury our Savior. Tough with the rule. Chuck the religion out. We're going to do what is right, not what is religious. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you and bless you. We glorify your name. May the spirit of Joseph of Arimathea come upon every one of us.
And of course, the journey always started with that conviction that Jesus had, that Joseph had. Something happened on Good Friday for Joseph. And he just thought, you know what? I'm going to give my all. Maybe there's someone who's watching. You've been touched by what you have heard. The Lord is knocking on the door of your heart. You want to open the door and invite him in. You want to start a relationship with him. You're asking, how do I do that? By making a confession. By accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. By believing what you say. And by trusting his spirit to lead you as you start this journey. If you're that person, why don't you say this prayer with me? You're in this auditorium or you're watching online. Heavenly Father, I open up my heart and receive your son Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I ask almighty and everlasting God that you give me the grace to turn away from anything that doesn't please you. To live in obedience to you. By this confession God. I declare that I'm a child of yours. Born again today into your kingdom. In Jesus name. Amen. If you said that prayer congratulations. We celebrate you. Welcome to the family of God. So now the rest of us, just for a minute or two, put out your hands. I just want us to... Uh, how, many, how many are in here at a place where they are saying, I need more of the Holy Spirit? How many want to be like that leaf that became black? How many? Let's see your hands if you're in here. Okay, we, we can start that journey um, here or you're online. Um, and I just want you for a minute or two just to send a message to God. Send a message to his spirit. I need you. I need your help. I need your help. I can't do it on my own. I'm just asking that you will come afresh on me. Go on. Can you believe that? That even here he will come fall afresh on you. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. We depend on you. We wait on you. We can't develop that kind of character without you. It's not possible. And so we just send a clear message that we are leaning on you, leaning into you. We are dependent on you, Heavenly Father. Deliver us from the tyranny of religion. Oh, help us to enter the liberty of Christ that comes from you. Even here, Holy Spirit, rest upon my brother, rest upon my sister. By this simple prayer, let something happen in their lives that brings about change. We thank you and we bless you. We give you all the praise. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Thank you Lord. Thank you Lord. Oh we bless you. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah.